Hi, I'm Steve. I'm Erin. And I'm Daniel. And we're the Verbal Reasoning Podcast. Three friends with professional scientific backgrounds. Talking about all things under the sun in the most digestible way. Enjoy. So today, we will be discussing herbal and holistic medicine with the one and only Herbal One. Uh, We'll link her Instagram into the bio of this episode. But uh, first things first, hello and thank you for coming on to the podcast. Hi, (laughs) thanks for having me. (laughs) So uh, do you want to maybe start off with maybe just, you know, who you are and what your interests are and, you know, maybe explain a little bit about what what herbal medicine is. Yeah, sure. So hi, everyone. Um, Thanks for having me, guys. My name is Sylvie um, and I'm a herbalist. And yeah, I sort of came through it through a different route. I think everybody has a sort of personal story about how they came to herbal medicine. Um, And for me, it was sort of, I used to work, I used to live in Morocco and I was working in a sort of remote Riyadh in the mountains. Um, I was working as a chef, mostly for yoga retreats. So I kind of always had the interest in sort of healing and food and, you know, that kind of always made sense. And I think a lot of people do approach um, health through food. And I think that's really valuable. Um, but because we were so rural, we actually didn't really have access to a pharmacy or a doctor or anything like that. Uh, we didn't have that much transport either. So the closest town was about a 40 minute walk, which, you know, when you're not feeling that well, is impossible <laughs> to really reach. Um, and so I actually started learning about local remedies that the guys in the village used to use from our housekeeper, Hassan. And yeah, I just found it really fascinating and it reminded me about a a lot of the things that sort of my family in Italy, um, as I was born there, they used to sort of do weird things like look into the eye of the the bottle of olive oil to get rid of sort of any like dust or anything that you had. And it was said to cure, you know, like any sort of eye disease when whilst that's a bit of a stretch. um, (laughs) It wasn't. Yeah, it would be, wouldn't it? It was just interesting and fascinating to me. And I guess I always had an affinity for sort of sort of like mysterious and um, magical ways of, you know, of healing and we'll put it that way. But yeah, so whilst that was sort of like a really interesting way of accessing it and to beginning, um, I then came back and decided to actually get qualified and I realized there was an actual degree and it was an actual science and there is an actual course where you can perform study um, phytochemicals and how plants actually work and, and it's not just sort of woo-woo, you know, take this and see how it goes. Yeah, so that's how I kind of got into it. And that's interesting because like my heritage of is actually North African as well. So not Morocco, but Algeria, which is next to next door. And my great grandmother, like she was, uh, I suppose, if you want to call it a healer, like the village healer, if you want to put it that way. And uh, honestly, like it seemed like magic at the time. Like I remember I was sick one time and like I was completely congested. And my great grandmother was like, oh, just come here. And she put she went to like the forest, came back, put some herbs in a pot. Like it's, it sounds like bullshit, but it's, it's it's insane. And then she heated it up and like the steams were coming off like the yeah. pan. And she was like, smell the pan. And as soon as I smelt it, I, I'm not even kidding. It just instantly, everything just went. Like yeah, I was yeah, just yeah. unblocked and everything. And I'm like, wow, this is magic. Yeah. That's, such a, that's such an amazing story and actually we have a i found the culture between italy and morocco to be really similar so i would imagine it's quite similar to to um algeria as well but yeah. you're right my auntie used to get me to do that as well so it used to make me breathe time mm-hmm. um, over like steaming pot and to clear sort of sinus infections which now as you know as a, as a herbalist makes complete sense to me yeah um, yeah so the roots of like herbal medicine are really old um and I think there is value in that, but I guess, you know, 
I'm sure we're going to get into it more. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I guess we can like, we have some facts prepared actually. So you <laughs> might find this interesting, but up to 80% of uh, Africa's population uh, in the modern era uses mm. traditional me- medicine as primary healthcare, as you observed in Morocco. Mm. And for Native Americans, actually, uh, they, they found that around 2,500 plant species are used in North American, Native American uh, medicine, um, which is quite, quite a large amount when you compare it to the total amount, which is 20,000. So it's almost a quarter. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you, you know, the biggest one that I always wondered about is Chinese medicine. How yeah. that's such a big thing, especially in East Asia. And now we're seeing like uh, modernly trained people in medicine also going back to Chinese medicine in light of like modern medicine to find out why it worked. And yeah, uh, it's, it's really impressive stuff. I absolutely love Chinese medicine. Um, I know nothing about it, really. <laughs> mm-hmm. I find it like it, it, it's kind of like I've had acupuncture before and I feel like it just it's kind of like witchcraft almost like the way they even just approach disease and diagnose stuff. It's um you know, looking at dampness or heat or the pattern of sort of like your pulse and things like that is so, so different from the training that, are, that I received, but it, it really works. And I have friends that have seen like um, a Chinese herbalist um, or Chinese doctor, I guess, like um, through time. And it is really fascinating how they identify disease. And the closest thing that I've sort of, that makes sense to me, I guess, that I've come across is Ayurveda. So from India, um, where you sort of assess um, the energetics of both the plant and the person, which is something that I've started to incorporate more in my sort of Western tradition of herbs, um, because it really makes sense. Like there are lots of different types of inflammation, for example, you know, or a cough. Or, like actually, that's a cough is a brilliant example because most people can relate to that. You can have a dry, tickly cough, which is very different to sort of like a productive phlegmy cough. And so you would approach those very differently. Um, So in Ayurveda, for example, they assess things like heat again or stagnation, water or air, whether something's dry and hot or whether it's something that's maybe like dry and cold. And so you can sort of get that bespoke medicine, which is really made to address the individual's complaint, which is something that we lack in um, in modern medicine, I guess, you know. Yeah, I mean, one size fits all. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to interject real quick and uh, just to give like a a little tidbit here. Um, So, we spoke a little bit about Chinese medicine there. Mm. Uh, In 1972, uh, a pharmaceutical chemist called uh, Tu Yu Yu extracted the anti malarial drug artemisinin from sweet wormwood, a traditional Chinese treatment for intermittent fevers. So you're seeing kind of like the cross between herbal medications or something that they use for intermittent fevers, which then a pharmaceutical chemist kind of used to develop an anti-malarial drug from. Yeah. Kind of meshing. I think that's actually a really good example because I think I don't often get this question, but I sometimes get people who are just like, oh, do you really believe in it? And I'm like, no, I just spent, you know, like three years at university for fun. <laughs> of course, just bands, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but if you think about it, and this is a really good example, um, you know, uh, aspirin is derived from willow bark, salix, and um, mm. digitalis, which is foxglove, which is the plant that you've probably seen in Harry Potter a couple of times. Um, that's sort of like pretty purple flowery one. Um, it's now actually not, we're not allowed to use it as herbalist because what it contains is a, a phytosteroid called digitoxin, which is a cardiac glycoside, not dissimilar to digoxin, which is like the main chemical compound for a lot of heart medication on the market. Right. So 
if you think that plans don't work, you kind of have to go back and think they kind of got us to, up to a certain point and then we started isolating um, constituents from like plants and using them mm -hmm. in medicine like this. Yeah. Except that I think that kind of works both ways was in some examples, it's really useful like aspirin with um, you know, willow and digitoxin with foxglove. Um, that plans work, I think, and this is something that I try and sort of like repeat all the time is they don't work in just one way. So turmeric is not just anti-inflammatory. Aloe vera is not just good for sunburns. They don't work like that. Um, they sort of work on like a spectrum of different things, you know, and that's um, a really good example of how that sort of backfired for us, I think is kava kava, which is a plant that's actually native to South Pacific, um, Savannah Tau near New Zealand. And um, kava kava is used in a ritualistic way, I guess in a way similar to ayahuasca. Um, it has like incredibly sort of like um, sedative properties and taken in really high doses, you can hallucinate. Um, but it was really helpful for people with extreme anxiety and depression and things like that. But obviously in the West, what we do is we don't like to take things traditionally and allow the plant to take its sort of natural course and take its natural time. and so. We tend to isolate the constituents and in the case of kava kava, the kava lactones in really high quantities on their own are really toxic to the liver. And so we've had cases with people dying mm. uh, from liver toxicity from that. And so now it's banned. And now we can't keep it at all. <laughs> in this That's country. frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. So it's um it's a balance of sort of like educating people that plants do work because if they didn't work, they wouldn't be banned. You know? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I've got maybe a little bit of another tidbit fact for everyone. Uh, on the World Health Organization statement, mm. approximately 25% of modern medicine is derived from plants. So, you know, like yeah. people might, might want to assume they're synthetic, but the reality is, uh, you know, even in modern medicine packaged in a pill way or whatever, the base com comes from plants. So. Yeah, absolutely. And if you don't think it works, that's completely fine. I would challenge you to drink a pint of senna and then please do give me a call if you don't have a really violent bowel movement after that. <laughs> I'd love to hear from you, you're the exception to the rule. <laughs> Maybe like the broader question I'd like to ask you is, hmm. like, do you think that modern medicine, like modern synthetic-based medicine, uh, in, in teaching in university and, you know, that the doctors are learning now, do you think we should try to revisit and incorporate, uh, let's say, if you want to call it traditional herbal alternatives into the education system? Yeah, absolutely. I think there is, um, I think when people um, come to see herbalists, especially, or sort of like alternative um, healing um, practitioners, we get a lot of like, ah, the doctor this, the doctor that. And it's like, we really don't hate the NHS or like modern medicine. There is a, there is a complete need for both. You know, if, you, if you're in an accident and you need surgery, don't come and see a herbalist, go to a surgeon because I, you know, I can't, I can't take your appendix out. <laughs> so there is absolutely a need for both. And like the NHS does a phenomenal job of like saving people's lives. And um, I think the, the, the topic of healthcare is political. Um, and it's really layered, obviously, because we have things like national health in this country, and we are so incredibly blessed to have that. But we also see in other systems such as America, and not just America, my, other, my background is also South African, we have private health there. Um, and when you have things like Big Pharma, when you have ulterior motives sort of behind people's healings and why 
we sort of prescribe the medication that we do, that's when it starts to become a bit more complicated, you know, because as a practitioner, as a, as a herbalist, I don't want to have to treat the same person for a year. Like I'm obviously doing something wrong. The goal for me is to be able for you to feel better, you know, whether then you can keep on coming seeing a herbalist for like a management plan, that's different. But, you know, we have people that are taking medication on for life mm-hmm. that are then causing other symptoms which are then sort of just addressed again symptomatically. So I think the biggest problem at the moment that we have with the healthcare system is that traditional healers will always try and heal from the root. So that's why our consultations are a lot longer because we can. And I understand the pressures on the NHS obviously are different, but you know, you go and see a herbalist for an hour, two hours, and we can discuss everything that's going on with your body and your lifestyle and everything like that, um, which is obviously very different to a 10 minute, you know, visit with a GP. But the, yeah, like I said, the, the, the aim of the game, I guess, for us is to always try and treat from the root. Um, mm-hmm. And whether that takes a couple of sessions or one is different. Whilst unfortunately, I guess, you know, because of obviously various limitations with Western medicine, we only get, oh, I have these symptoms, take that tablet. Yeah. Not necessarily, oh, why are you having those symptoms? Let's investigate and get to the root. Exactly, okay. yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I what, have an, what I think, were your? Oh, sorry. Go on then. Go on. See. Uh, yeah, I was just gonna say, like, I have an anecdote that I think I brought up before, where my friend had, um, let's say, like a, a a shoulder issue where he couldn't he couldn't move his shoulder too far, or if he moved quickly, it it hurt. And he went to a lot of uh, like standard NHS doctors, yep. and their solution was straight away surgery. You know, you fix it with surgery, fix it with surgery. Yep. And he had electroshock therapy as well, which didn't work. And um, so I follow the fitness community and I was telling him like, try just getting stronger, like tr- tr- try see what would happen if you just properly got stronger on your uh, o- overall. And it, it worked uh, in the end. He's, he's no longer complaining. And yeah. Yeah. And it's also about people having agency over how they want to choose to heal because herbal medicine might not work for everybody. Just like mm-hmm. acupuncture might not work for everybody. But if you have options, you know, that's kind of what it's all about is you having a choice over how you choose to heal. Well, I was just going to ask then. Um, so for example, you know, with the, some of the stuff that you've mentioned, uh, obviously you can find the root of it and maybe try to cure it or, you know, ail it to an extent with uh, herbal medication. But in, for example, situations where like, I don't know, the person's got cancer or some other kind of terminal disease, uh, you know what what would be the role of herbal medicine in that situation because as i understand obviously there isn't anyone claiming to cure cancer with herbal remedies but is you know is the role of herbal medicine there then to kind of treat this the symptoms which might be like the pain and so on or how how would herbal medicine play into that sort of disease yeah no i think cancer is actually a really good example of that there are various conditions actually which we have a very limited amount of what we can do in terms of herbs and in that respect you're absolutely right in saying that herbal medicine would be a supportive therapy around that um, and i think that's also depends on the patients because i know there are some patients um, and i you know that choose to not engage in chemotherapy or synthetic medicine and that's obviously like um, a much bigger sort of um, situation where it's not just herbs they're probably looking at a massive part of it would be nutrition as well um, and working with lots of other sort of functional therapies yeah. um, but I know that there's actually one of my old lecturers works as, um, as a herbalist in a, in a cancer clinic in England where their job is primarily supportive, you know, so sort of like any sort of side effects 
that maybe can be minimized by giving herbs because they'll have sort of less effects, um, sorry, less side effects than sort of a, an anti-nausea tablet, for example, or an antacid if you were having sort of like chronic reflux from, you know, or nausea, which I think is one of the most common sort of complaints from um, chemotherapy. And not just that, we have, you know, patients with HIV that are taking antiretrovirals. There is very little that we can actually do because so many things interfere with antiretrovirals and they are on such a sort of strict schedule in terms of like timing and dosages and they really have to like, they can live, you know, really well um, so long as they stick to their like their regimen and their protocol. Um, and, but there are some therapies and I think there was, there's a quite a few studies actually done with valerian in aiding um, sort of the side effects of the, of the antiretrovirals when it comes to sort of poor sleeping habits and like insomnia. And I think possibly nausea, but I'm not, I need to double check that one. But yeah, you're right. In some respects, we're here to support, but there are lots of things that we can actually just sort of treat, you know. So I, I think it's a balance. I absolutely think that um, Western medicine, sort of, sorry, allopathic medicine, modern medicine can definitely work, you know, in conjunction with not just herbal medicine, but physiotherapy, um, acupuncture, Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, lots of different things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and in terms of like diet i was quite interested in you kept bringing up diet how influential is diet in health i mean a hundred percent like i think even in herbs like we look a lot at diet i mean you are what you eat mm-hmm. you know and um so many issues that can sort of stem from a poor diet and it can be anything from sort of skin to you know to liver problems to um, depression anxiety there's a lot of sort of things that can come from having a poor diet and or drinking too much or too little in terms of water yeah. or anything anything in excess you know is obviously really bad but um, mm. diet is, an, is a key is a really key aspect of health in general I would say yes in, in your experience would you say that there is a uh, let's say optimal diet for human beings or is it more person by person basis and people react to different diets differently yeah no i think it's i think nothing is a one size fits all nothing there's not one plant that i've seen plants that i will give for the same you know inverted commas (laughs) condition work very differently in different types of people because again it's that sort of assessing the energetics of that person where um everybody's different so disease for me presents differently to disease for you and i know people that function incredibly well on a keto diet and they love it and they feel great and there are people that just really struggle you know and um i'm predominantly veggie i was vegan for a while um i'd like to move back to that i didn't find it that hard i did it over a really sort of long period of time and there are people that really struggle with it and you know everybody to their own and like as long as you're all sort of doing the best that you think is you know for yourself I think that's the most important thing but no there's definitely not a one-size-fits-all diet I mean I know this is going to be kind of basically asking you well what is the one-size-fits-all thing but you know as a sidestep is Mm -hmm. there any kind of uh, thing that you see people traditionally uh, buying that they maybe shouldn't buy even if it is like a herbal thing or they consume it more than they should be or vice versa is there anything that like like, for example is at my local supermarket that I could just go and get and try to incorporate into my food that you would particularly say is oh this would be good or this isn't good and so on I see this all the time with herbal medicine actually and it's something that I'm it's a fine balance between my personal passion with herbal medicine is to try and make herbs accessible to everyone because I don't believe that alternative therapies 
should be something that are exclusive to people who are rich and who can afford it. That really, like, it, it, that really gets me going. <laughs> it's just like, mm. yeah, especially because the majority of people that really need it are usually low income or they have some sort of like accessibility issue. And I think that's what I'm personally working on towards. And so, you know, obviously being able to go to Boots and say, for example, buy some John's Ward supplements for depression mm. is really great in one way. But the other issue is that it comes with a lot of side effects um, that you're not necessarily told about because they're not allowed to market those products in the correct way because of legislation. But also, this is the thing is like if we give pe- plant medicine as the people's medicine, but we mm. don't have that connection to plants anymore. And it's not even just about knowing plants. It's also about identifying disease. And this is a difference between, I mean, you guys can go and pick up a herbal medicine book and read about the Materia Medica and sort of know, oh, well, chamomile is a great anti-inflammatory and I can use it for this and I can use it for that. And that whilst chamomile is a really safe example, um, you're not necessarily able to identify disease. So if you Mm -hmm. can't identify the disease and what you're treating, which is really hard to do for yourself, because it's like reading a book, you know, too close. um, Yeah can't really see what is actually happening you can't really treat yourself so yeah there are these there are these supplements that are really like available which is a really great thing and at the same time i struggle with it because i see so many people that have been like oh, i've taken st john's wort and then my pills stopped working and i got pregnant and i'm like yeah that's because st john's wort actually has this um kind of like absorbent effect where it can it can have an effect on any other sort of pharmaceuticals and medication that you're taking or people that become addicted to laxatives, even if they're herbal laxatives, because the laxatives, <clears throat> herbal laxatives. Yeah. Senna is a really big sort of like, um, marketed and it's easily available. Um, laxatives, you can buy it from boots. You can buy it in tablet form. You can buy it in tea form. The way that it how works, do you, how do you become, sorry, I'm just really confused. How do you become addicted to laxatives? So the way that Senna works, um, and not just uh-huh. Senna, aloe vera as well is um they contain a a compound called anthroquinones and the way that anthroquinones work is that they essentially empty out quite violently a larger portion of your bowel than you would in a regular bowel movement so once you've taken senna and you go to the toilet you'll sort of empty your bowels more than you would regularly which then sort of gives up more space in your bowel to fill up but then you think that you're constipated because you've emptied a larger part of your bowels and so you go and take more senna because you Uh think that you're constipated and you sort of go in this vicious cycle of but i can't go unless i take it no 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 you can go you just have to give it a lot more time because of what you've emptied out compared to what you would normally on your own so that's kind of weird because i used to work in a pharmacy and um you know we used to give like uh monthly prescriptions of senna where we'd give like 100 tablets a month or something and people yeah. would come in and take that and i always did wonder why somebody would continuously use laxatives like unless yeah but i guess i guess that is the thing then I, if you think that you can't go without it then 100 percent. i don't know people get used to that feeling of emptiness if that makes sense where you feel like suddenly you've eat, you you know you've evacuated your bowels you feel really empty it's like going for a colonic isn't it you feel really good and then you eat and then you're like whoa i feel really bloated again and my stomach doesn't feel right and blah blah, blah. and that's actually not that it doesn't feel right it just feels different mm. but you feel heavier because you've obviously done something that lightened you <laughs> so much yeah. more you know? So the idea with um, 
you know, with say, for example, constipation would be to sort of introduce things like, which is a really good example of a one size fits all, I guess, would be um, mucilaginous type of food or herbs such as chia seeds and flax seeds because they create sort of bulk in the bowel. So it helps to sort of like move everything along as mm -hmm. opposed to just going in with like a really strong herb that is just going to have this sort of like cramping effect which is also quite painful and horrible to be perfectly honest. <laughs> you know, it's not a pleasant experience. Yeah. So chia and flax seeds are good for, to kind of help with digestion and yeah, you know, going to the toilet like, basically. Yeah. They're mucilaginous herbs. So they're also like just good gut food. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people take probiotics and they take, they sort of like ingest all these like really good um, microbes, which are really great for their gut, but then they eat, a really poor diet and so they're not feeding the microbiome of the gut and so mm. it's important to like i'm sure you've heard of it things like sauerkraut kombucha fermented foods mm. chia seeds and lint milled linseeds they're all sort of like really good um yeah gut bacteria food that's interesting yeah, when, I, when i was younger i remember like um, i read something online about garlic and it says something about uh, you know eating garlic like lowers cholesterol and so i i, I honestly used to just eat garlic cloves as yeah. a kid uh, my breath did kick but <laughs> <laughs> but your cholesterol levels are great <laughs> yeah yeah i was wondering like just just on that note like what kind of properties does garlic have so garlic is actually a really really powerful antimicrobial um and it is actually so strong that if you you can cause sort of like skin burns if, if applied topically and you're particularly sensitive to that um mm. But it is a really good antimicrobial actually. So it's something that we would use in sort of like treating deep infections. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, it's a good one. You know what, this is gonna, again, I'm just gonna take this completely, or well, not completely, but a little to the left. Um, speaking of Steve, you know, wolfing down garlic, in our cuisine, we tend to like, you know, in Kurdish cuisine, we tend to put a lot of like, you know, onions and peppers and stuff like that in our food as well. Uh, you know, what's some of the properties of let's say onions and, peppers and stuff like that is that is that something that we should you know try to incorporate more of less of so how does that really, affect the body yeah i can't really speak to the power of onions or peppers I'll, i'm not gonna lie i'll be i'll be honest but there are definitely like traditional ways of cooking in various cultures um which make complete sense and so if you look at the mediterranean diet as an example we use a lot of um thyme and rosemary sage and all those herbs are actually um fall under a category called carminatives um, and I'll explain what that does in a minute because I'm just going to jump to the Indian cuisine, which um, if you've ever been to an Indian restaurant or to India where they have those trays of seeds at the end of um, sort of by the bar that people sort of scoop up and they chew and they munch on them after a meal. And they are also comminatives and they are normally sort of things like cumin and um, cloves and cinnamon and ginger and things like that. And what carminatives do is they actually uh, reduce bloating and gas. So they are actually something that we try to do with people that have digestive problems, at least it's something that I like to do with patients is to get you to use things that you are already sort of like in your environment. People can be really quite difficult when it comes to sort of changing radically. And that, that makes sense, you know, but if you already sort of have like you're cooking stuff and you like cooking for yourself, but you're having digestive problems, adding things like thyme, rosemary, sage, or you know, cumin, caraway, cloves, depending on what you're cooking, can actually be a really helpful way of incorporating herbs and plants that are then going to sort of aid your digestive process. So yeah, so whilst I'm not really sure what onions and red peppers would do for digestion, 
um, there are sort of other herbs that can be helpful. And I know that in the Netherlands, for example, they have a tradition of drinking bitters before eating meals. Um, and that is actually one of the sort of the main ways that um, I like to sort of treat digestive complaints again, because what it does is bitters stimulate salivary enzymes. So you have like this excess salivation in your mouth because of the bitter taste. But actually studies have shown that you have these um, bitter taste receptors all along the GI tract and in the stomach, which means that the increasing gastric output so like stomach acid is increasing your stomach. And whilst that sounds scary, what you're actually doing is you're having a more effective digestion because you have more enzymes in your mouth and more stomach acid in your stomach from drinking the bitters. So it's interesting to see these sort of like traditions across different cultures and they make sense why they're there. Mm. You know, what? I'm learning so much right now. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm making notes. <laughs> you know what? Actually, I'm going to be cheeky. I'm going to ask you something specifically for me. Okay. I've been struggling with uh, GERD recently, which yeah. is the, you know, uh, stomach acid. Yeah. I don't know why it's, it's really affecting me since I've been in lockdown, maybe because my diet has changed, yeah. I guess, because I, I am being a bit more slobbish. But mm. is there anything like, is there any kind of herb that you might suggest that could potentially decrease the amount of stomach acid you have? Because I think I've got too much at the moment. So actually, um, the thing about GERD is that um, there, it, it's caused by loads of different things. So it can be caused by stress, a lot of the times, which, which people completely underestimate. Um, <clears throat> I think in my first year of university, I managed to give myself stress-induced IBS and gastric reflux, just from yeah. eating really poorly and being really stressed out, <clears throat> but also really poor eating habits, like eating cold food all the time or just carbohydrates and just, you know, not paying attention. Um, a bitters would actually promote the better digestion, not just by sort of increasing stomach acid, but all along. So actually, if you were to take a bitters, a mix of mm. bitter herbs or bitter tea or even Angostura, you know, Angostura bitters that they put in cocktails, um, that would help. But there are loads of herbs that can help with soothing. So the way that I like to sort of, again, um, inverted air quotes, <laughs> um, yeah. treat GERD and things like that would be a bitters before meals and then uh, licorice, marshmallow root, afterwards or and even like what, what what was the mix that i made for myself which i really liked it was licorice marshmallow root and fennel and you sort of make a tea of that and you drink that straight away after your meal and so the licorice and the marshmallow are demulcent herbs which means that they sort of soothe and they sort of they're quite gelatinous in a way and they coat um mm. the lining of your gi tract in your stomach and um the fennel is a comminative so it will sort of reduce any sort of cramping, bloating and anti-inflammatory properties. Sorry. It you know, people don't, people don't uh, appreciate how, how much something like, uh, you know, stomach acid can affect you. It's been an absolute nightmare for me for like oh, a year now. Yeah. yeah and I, like I, I've took all the, you know, the Rennies and the, you know, the, the, the what's yeah. that pink one or whatever. I've taken all those things. And although they initially work, I guess after a point, your body develops some sort of kind of immunity to them or something. I don't know, but it doesn't seem to work for me long term. Yeah, no, 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 of course. Like what antacids do, and this is really common. Again, this is a way, this is another really good example of like symptomatic treating that actually ends up backfiring on people is antacids work by reducing stomach acid. But by reducing mm. stomach acid in the long run, you're actually decreasing your power of digestion, which means that oh. you're going to continuously have the same problem. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's been it's been a very uphill struggle for me, but you know, now that we've got you on and I've got that, you know, bit of information <laughs> there, I'm definitely going to try out <laughs> uh, the bitters <laughs> and the licorice and so on. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I know that was me being a bit cheeky and asking a That's personal right. question there, but um, you know, if Steve wants to ask anything uh, next, his question. Uh, I did some research on like generically, I guess, and th- th- there was claims that you know a lot of this know-how originally stemmed from people observing animals uh, eating certain things and asking why would they eat this specific herb or etc. And obviously this then cascades into shamanism and so on. Mm. Um, maybe my question is like, do you think herbal medicine is like heavily associated with pseudoscience and superstition? Um, especially with like, uh, as we said, like, um, you know, in the modern day, we kind of think like the doctor knows everything and anything else is completely you know false yeah. and like how do you feel about that no absolutely i think um a hundred percent people associate herbal medicine with harry potter potions class um <laughs> shamanism just sort of like make-believe kind of stuff you know um and um i mean i think it's a again i i mean i think everything's political yeah. <laughs> but i do think it is definitely sort of part of that like patriarchal um, society that we live in at the moment. But I actually had a really interesting conversation. It's funny you bring up this question. I had a really interesting conversation with an Uber driver the other day. Um, We got stuck in traffic and he was from India. He'd been here 35 years and he was like, so so what do you do? And I tell him I'm a herbalist. And he's like, oh, okay, um, but you don't have plants in England. And I was like, no, we do. We have lions. We have a very <laughs> huge tradition of, and I'm, I'm, I'm not British, but like European and like the West in general yeah. has a massive tradition of, um, you know, of, of healing um, through plants and not just that, but obviously religion as well. And I think people forget that in this country. Um, obviously the West has gone on to colonize the majority of the rest of the world. And so we're always pointing the fingers and going, ah, look at what we did there. Look at what we did in this country. Look at what Amer- you know, we did in America. Um, but I think we need to remember that we, were, we obviously colonized ourselves first um, in the sense that, you know, Britain obviously has a, such a rich history of even just like near, um, sorry, pagan and ancient religions, like Celtic traditions. And then Christianity sort of inter- intervened and sort of, you know, muddled itself up there. And um, we obviously still have a really rich tradition of plant medicine. It's just that we've been, we've colonized ourselves and we've done it from such a long time ago that the traditions and the things that we think are our traditions, I don't think are really necessarily that true anymore. They sort of, you know, they're, they're way more old. Yeah. Do, They've do sort you, of masked. Do you think also like big money comes into it? I guess like for synthetic medicine you know you can just create a factory that churns out kilos of of these things as compared to growing you know plants directly yeah no absolutely like there is no money in being a herbalist <laughs> you know, there is no money in being in the traditional healer of the village yeah. you know you tr- you heal people and they get better and they don't come back to you you know that's the aim of the game is like we want people to feel better we don't want them to be on you know antacids for example and then you have to keep on coming back and then in two years time you've developed sort of like gastric ulcers or something it's just like Mm. it's like it's like we said before when there is an ulterior motive to the health system which is powered sort of by money or political action or anything like that then it's really it's really hard to assess whether 
the system in place is actually there for the benefit of the people or for the benefit of big pharma. And to some extent, we're luckier in this country in the sense that we're not quite as driven by big pharma as they are, for example, in the States. But yeah. it was actually a really interesting program on Netflix called, bear with me, I'll get there. Uh, I'll find it for you. And I think it was related to... Um, is it the pharmacist by any chance? Or? No, it was the one about drugs. Um, what's it called? Oh, where the anthropologist um, went around and she had—I'll find it anyway. I'll, we'll find the name. Um, but basically, she went into parts of America that and explored the sort of like the addiction to oxytocin and the opioids crisis that they had over there. And it was really interesting because those are those are li that's literal heroin just being dispensed you know, by doctors, because it, because it pays them to. Yeah, um, we've discussed, discussed this sort of thing before, where, like, again, as I mentioned earlier, I did spend, like, a good four years during university working in the pharmacy, and yeah. in the one that we worked in, we used to dispense, you know, oxytocin and, uh, well, it's called something else in this country, and uh, also methadone, which, right, yeah. you know, I've got a pharmacology background, I can unilaterally yeah. tell you methadone is just as bad, if not as bad, as heroin. Yeah. But it's legal and, you know, you give yeah. it to people and they become addicted to that instead of heroin, basically. And the whole concept is to wean them off here. But we had somebody in there that had been taking it for years and yeah. you know, he would take a bottle a day. So, you know, I, I think that is a very valid point that you're making there that yeah, you can you give people pharmaceutical drugs. But I mean, it's not always that the drug is, you know, <clears throat> a fantastic thing that's going to help them out and be great for them. Yeah. Sometimes it is it can be even more dangerous than anything. So yeah. I guess the, my general question to you is, do you believe in, you know, the kind of conspiracies that they say when they say, oh, the drug industry doesn't want you to get better. They just want you to keep coming back so they can sell you more drugs. Is that, is that, is that an actual conspiracy? Because I just think that's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> I was about like, to say, like, Aaron, what are you talking about? <laughs> and see, um, you know what's weird, though? If you said this 10 years ago, you'd be seen as the weird guy. Oh, but now I think more people think, you know, yeah, they do. They don't want you to get better. They just want to sell you drugs. So yeah, I, get, I, I think we are becoming sort of more... We live in an age where obviously like we're more um, exposed to different perspectives and we have capability with social media too. Obviously we're exposed to so much more news, but also so many different types of news in the sense that everybody has a platform, not just the selected sources of media that the government mm. chooses in a communist country or in any country, you know, you know, you don't have to be a reputable source of information to be a source of information. Mm -hmm. You can be literally a guy on Twitter, or yeah. you can be a scientist or you can be somebody who's really well respected. And so we have access to all of this knowledge, but I think people are starting to become <laughs> more held accountable. Like we don't, you can't really get away with as much, even if seemingly like you don't get prosecuted or there are no sort of like legal implications on people um, say like big pharma or, you know, vaccine trials, that's another entirely different subject. Um, but even if you don't sort of get uh, punished or dealt with people, there is generally, I, I think what I'm trying to get to is that there is generally a mistrust. And I think even in something like COVID and the way that people are responding to COVID are more willing or less willing to either have a vaccine or to stay indoors and self-isolate because some people don't really believe that it's happening, which is, you know, bizarre. Um, but some people don't. Some people genuinely believe it's like the government trying to get them. I think there might be elements to it that we are not quite privy to. 
there might be an ulterior motive behind it there might not be there's a general distrust and so yeah i I, I mean, I think it's quite, I think it depends. I think this country is obviously more, reg, at least seemingly more regulated. Mm -hmm. I feel like America and their healthcare system is uh, a lot more wild west. Yeah. Where you yeah can it's a free for to, all there. I guess. Yeah, you can pay to go and see a doctor and get um, um, what you call it, the ADHD medication that helps you focus and do better at school. Um, yeah, yeah. I feel like saying, is that Ritalin? But I could just yeah. be naming a random drug, but no, no, I think it might be called Ritalin. No, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's Ritalin. You can literally just go and pay a doctor um, for that kind of prescription and, and you can pass, you know, university much easier than you could over here, you know, whilst mm. you actually still need a valid um, <laughs> diagnosis from a GP. It's not quite as mm. simple. Like, here's 80 quid, give me the medication. Yeah. yeah yeah we have controlled drugs here like the yeah. like methadone for example yeah if you were to even spill five mils of it you need to make a note that i spilled five mils and they will check how many times you're spilling because if you spill it too much they'll say well you're drinking it mate so there's your license gone um you know they, like literally per milliliter you'd have to say this is how much i have in my pharmacy there's no joke there's no messing about you have to measure it correctly accountability and it's important when it comes to you know for things like that Exactly. Uh, you, you touched COVID and maybe <laughs> just going to ask you, uh, like, for, in your opinion, like, what can people do to help boost their immune system and help give them the best fight against, uh, you know, this, this struggling times? COVID. I'm going to just be really honest. I don't think we, I, at least personally, um, I don't think we have enough information at the moment. I don't think we have enough data um, on how the disease works, on how it spreads, on the effects of it, really, because we're starting to learn day every day. We're learning more and more about um, the fact that it has long-term effects on sort of mm. like um, your stress, not your stress level, sorry, your your fatigue. So people are becoming more fatigued um, with is like, sorry, fatigue is becoming a sign of sort of long a long-term effect of COVID. Um, and so I don't really think that we know enough. I know in the herbal community, there was a lot of talk about um, whether echinacea uh, would be helpful or not. I've heard arguments for and against. Yeah, I think it's a really tough one at the moment. I think um, I don't know enough. Yeah, you know what? That's factual because uh, yeah. my father's actually had COVID and uh, he still gets called from the hospital months down the line now to yeah. have tests done on him to see what the long-term effects are. We genuinely yeah. don't know what this know. virus does. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we were hoping that during the summer it would kind of go away because, you know, if it was like the flu, then because of the heat, it might die out. But in reality, especially in the UK, during the summer, for example, it, we actually had our peak during the June, yeah. July period. So like nothing, we, we don't really know anything about the virus anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was friends with the doctor, um, I'm friends with the doctor, and when I saw her at, the last time I saw her, we were taking a course together, she was studying at London School of Tropical Medicine, um, I think I've said that right, sorry guys, my brain is a bit... <laughs> yeah, that, no, is the, just, that is the school, yeah. It is that right, um, and she was, she was a doctor and she was doing some sort of... Um, sort of top-up course or master's, I think. And she was just saying, nah, don't worry about it. This was in April, uh, no, like February, maybe. End of January, mm. February. She's like, don't worry about it. Um, it looks really bad now. It looks really bad in the media, but it's been exaggerated. We're, we're going to be absolutely fine. We're not absolutely fine at mm. all. <laughs> I don't think, and I think she was genuinely speaking from like her experience as a, you know, of somebody in the industry, in the medical industry, and with the knowledge mm. that we had at the time. 
doctors and everything that I spoke to as well, because I work in a hospital, yeah, uh, they all were very calm about it come February. They said, oh, it'll be fine, you know, won't that be a big issue? But then, you know, you saw the numbers slowly start to increase and now they're the first to say, oh no, we have a problem here. We have to fix this. Yeah, but that you escalated just, quickly. Yeah. yeah, it escalated amazingly quickly. <laughs> yeah, man. ridiculous. Famous last words, we're fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you never exactly. want to say those words. <laughs> oh, never again. <laughs> uh, like l- lately there's been a trend of like CBD oil use. Now, like for me, I'm, I'm not quite sure like how, how truthful that is or whether it's, you, you know, I can see it being a ploy of, um, you know, oh yeah, it's weed, marijuana, people will just buy it and mm. you just tell them it's useful for your body. Uh, I, I don't know if you've studied it or if, if you have an inclination of what it's it can be something, It's not something I've really worked with. Um, it is always interesting to observe trends um, and they always happen in terms of health. And they, 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 I mean, they always happen in terms of everything. Yeah. They, you know, one day Guji berries are like a superfood and oh my God, yeah. blueberries and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, they're really good for you, but like, so are loads of other berries and it's fine. <laughs> um, I do think CBD, I've seen people who take it regularly um, and it seems to really help. I've found that it sort of from listening, um, to people, um, the knowledge I have is that it seems to really help with things with chronic pain and anxiety. Um, I don't have any personal experience in using it. Mm-hmm. I do find it funny, I guess, as usual, when we sort of go through those stages of like, it's in your drinks, it's in your smoothies, yeah. it's, in your, it's in your chocolate bars now, it's, it's in everywhere, like everybody <laughs> just takes CBD and like go with it, you know? and. Um, Actually, that happens with herbal medicine. I don't know if you've heard of a, a class of herbs called adaptogens. Uh, this is my favorite soapbox to stand on, actually. So adaptogens are sort of, um, they're a class of herbs that allow your body to handle stress um, more efficiently, which on paper, that just sounds like, wow, like that's amazing, you know. But if you think about it, if you're not addressing the root again, of your stress, if you're not addressing sort of what's causing your stress, you're allowing your body to continue in a pattern of dysfunction for a longer period of time, which ultimately is just gonna lead you to being more messed up just further along the line, as Mm -hmm. opposed to sort of dealing with it from the beginning. So that's another really big trend that I see everywhere, you know, um, ashwagandha, latte, rhodiola tablets, and like, they are, look, they're phenomenal herbs, but again, if used under the correct circumstances and in the um in the correct doses in the correct ways a bit like you know i was listening to your psychedelic episode um with nicole and they're they're for not it's a it's powerful medicine if used in the correct way in the correct doses under the right supervision or you can just get really messed up on it <laughs> yeah. So, yeah i think that seems like the the moral of the story is you know you, you have to be educated and yeah. not just take things as a fad or but actually know what you're doing and yeah maybe, yeah I, I guess one of the questions is for a layman for an everyday person where can they get this information I mean it'd be great to have you around all the time but <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like I would say that try and see a herbalist if you have a if, a, if you have a serious concern you know like Aaron for example with like you good like try it try like yeah. try what I've just told you like and that's great mm. But like, don't be afraid to try and approach herbalists because um, most herbalists understand the, you know, the, the fact that 
we don't all have a lot of money to access health, private healthcare. And so most herbalists will be, or alternative practitioners will be happy to sort of work out either a payment plan or like a lot of them offer sliding scale um, payments and reduction, like reduction in fees for unemployed or, you know, things like that. So I think it's always worthwhile trying to go and see a professional just because like I said, anybody that works at Whole Foods or a health store can learn about herbs and you can read the back of the bottle, but they don't necessarily understand disease and the way that it works and the way that it works for you specifically. And so I would always encourage people to go and see somebody. Um, but if not, if you really don't have that as an option, um, you know, there are loads of online resources, um, but I would say your local health shop is probably got somebody who is either a herbalist or a nutrition or somebody who's probably training and is more able to sort of give you some advice than a big chain. Um, those people tend to be sort of trained more into like selling you stuff as opposed to selling you the right stuff. Definitely. But yeah, your local health store generally has somebody who just has a little bit more knowledge or is probably trained as a herbalist, a Chinese herbalist or something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, just, to, you know, as like a wrap up sort of question, this is actually one of the ones that I was more curious about. Um, so you're very vocal, especially on like your Instagram about uh, something called Yoni medicine. Yeah. Now, from what I understand, this isn't really a topic that I can relate to, yeah. but just for our listeners and for me as well, can you kind of tell me what Yoni medicine is and, yeah. you know, what it's used for? Absolutely. So Yoni Medicine is, um, so the Yoni package that I'm running on Instagram at the moment is actually, I'm what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to run a, a different series of um, sort of topics. So like I did a sleep uh, package in collaboration with Nicole that you had on the podcast, um, where she kind of gave us the neuroscience of sleep and sleep patterns and how they're affected. And I sort of like try and educate people on my Instagram about sort of uh, what kind of herbs could help and in what way and sort of just give a little bit more information than just say take lavender take chamomile take valerian mm -hmm. so that's kind of the point that i'm trying to um do with my instagram as well i guess is just to again increase that accessibility to people by sort of broadening the knowledge the yoni packages at the moment that i'm running is um it's a series on vaginal health um just because it's something that we see really, really commonly in clinics, um, especially in alternative medicine, because women are generally less believed um, <laughs> when we go to the GP about our sort of um, our sexual reproductive health and vaginal health is, I mean, it's, I don't think it's um, rocket science and like, I don't think it's a, like a secret that, you know, female studies are underfunded. Um, there are definitely more studies done on like, say, erectile dysfunction um, and the effects of Viagra than there are on endometriosis, PCOS uh, or anything like that. And I think in general, again, because we live in that sort of system of like patriarchal medicine, women are never really believed or they're always kind of made to question whether what you're presenting with is true. And it's it's really common to hear, um, you know, women that go to a GP for vaginal issues say maybe like endometriosis or things like that and they're told that they need they're depressed but they're making it up that it's in your head um and again I, <laughs> I think again this is a contraception is a political topic um because at the end of the day there are two people involved in the act 
and however the responsibility is always sort of put on the women and so at the moment it's about also educating and I'm actually really happy to have this conversation with men because the majority of the time I'm having um, conversations about vaginal health with women and the stories are you know kind of always similar and infuriating but the patriarchy affects men as well, you know, and that's part of like the conversation is needs to flip, be flipped to men as well. And they need to understand and they need to be educated that actually women are only fertile one or two days of the month for mm. approximately 30 to 40 years. Men are fertile 24 7, 365 days a year. Come on, your whole lives. (laughs) (laughs) Your whole lives. And, you know, male contraception exists. We just don't like to talk about it because we are so used to having control and controlling women's bodies, you know. But if, um, if men had PCOS, if men had <laughs> hmm. things like that, there would be more studies done about it because a vasectomy is a 20 to 30 minute procedure, which is reversible and has absolutely no effect on your hormonal health or any other, you know, body health. Whilst, you know, women are sort of told to, oh, I've got bad skin. Here's the pill. You're 15 years old. It has a massive impact no. on your hormonal health and not just your hormonal health, but your entire body. And so... Yeah. The yoni package and the yoni sort of like conversation is something that I really want more men to engage with because it's so important for men to also understand how the female body works and how female reproduction works. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. Like it blew my mind when I learned that I could only fall pregnant one or two days of the month. I was like, wait, what? Like, what? Uh, yeah, I, I didn't realize it was that short, the time period, to be honest. I thought, I thought it, was, it was like a good week or two per month. Yeah, and like, you don't want to get trapped. So, exactly, yeah. <laughs> to identify <laughs> those days of the month. Like, it's, um, yeah, and it's, it, the thing is that obviously when, if contraception was a conversation every time, mm. that would obviously stop a lot of, you know, sort of, uh, Tinder dates from happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if if more guys do want to learn about this, then your Instagram is underscore the herbal one. So yeah. you know, head over there and uh, check it out. Check out the uh, you know her posts and the information that's been put out there for sure. You can ask if you wanted to promote anything of yours onto the podcast. Uh, I'm just running my Instagram page and obviously um, you can just DM me and email me uh, for more informational consultations or anything like that. But yeah. Awesome. Just just to let them know she's uh, London based. So uh, we know that a lot of our listeners are from London, so you can get Uh, direct contact. Well, actually the the main thing that I'm trying to do is run online consultations as well. So to also make sure that people that have like sort of mobility um, issues and can't have, um access to thing yeah to just sort of like physically travel to a consultation i'm doing in person but i'm actually really really focusing on doing online consultations so available um everywhere <laughs> awesome yeah so our listeners from uh, you know america to australia you know everywhere. get get at it follow the herbal one and uh, yeah dm her for any information that you need brilliant thank you so much guys it's been yeah it's been really great it's been really good it's been really fun yeah. Uh, Steve, why didn't you say who said having fun and being serious can't go hand in hand? That was bloody brilliant.